Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Hi, David. How are you doing this week? I'm doing well. Thanks, uh, Richie. And yourself? Not bad. Not bad. I heard that you won an award this week. Well, on on World Osteoporosis Day, I was privileged to receive a prestigious award from a patient um, who turned up who turned up to receive one of her infusions, and she presented me with a, a golden skeleton to which she had sellotaped a best bone dock on it. Um, and that was very nice. That's the best sort of award to get. Uh, as it happened, I put a photograph of me with my award on Twitter, and I think some people thought it was actually a serious award I had received. So that was quite funny, and it was a nice way to uh, to mark World Osteoporosis Day and actually to see a lot of traction for World Osteoporosis Day on social media. Wow, World Osteoporosis Day, no less. That's fantastic. It must be really rewarding to have to be treating patients and for them to be doing well and for them to say thank you. That's amazing. It is. And it's nice. It's nice when people actually go out of their way to, uh, to, to market in some way. So uh, it is. If, if the patient's listening, thanks very much for my, uh, for my golden skeleton. And uh, if you're a young medic listening, maybe endocrinology or rheumatology is the way forward. Maybe indeed. We've been getting a lot of good feedback on... Twitter and Facebook for the podcast, but I think there's a bit of a gap in the content that we've covered so far. Our guests that we've had have explained the clinical pathways for bone health screening and for fracture risk assessments, but one important point that we haven't covered yet is how do you as clinicians actually decide which people to screen? Well, we can't screen everyone. And the goal ultimately of screening is to identify people who are most likely to have osteoporosis or high fracture risk, or ultimately who are likely to benefit from treatment. And we know that the best predictor of having a fracture this year is if you've had a fracture last year. And therefore the best chance of those, the best chance of finding those who need treatment is to assess people who have recently had a fracture and we know you are at a particularly high risk of having fracture shortly after you've had a previous fracture. So the idea of going out and doing assessments on people who have recently fractured is really the concept behind a fracture liaison service. Okay, so that makes sense. So people who've already had a fracture are most at risk of having another fracture and you mentioned they're a fracture liaison service. What's a, what's a fracture liaison service? Well, a fracture liaison service, it, it varies from place to place, but 
most basically it involves um, screening people in your area who have recently fractured. It usually involves having an interview with a nurse specialist or a radiographer, a specialist radiographer, to discuss risk factors and, and past history and medication. It usually involves having a bone density assessment or a DEXA scan. And it usually involves, or indeed it should involve, having a calculation of a FRAC score. And it means that everyone in your area who has recently had a fracture gets a, a specific and personalized assessment and prediction of their risk of further fracture. Some fracture liaison services have, have other aspects. Some, for example, do blood tests. Some offer uh, immediate consultations with doctors. And it varies in place to place. And indeed, one of the questions we ask sometimes is what constitutes a good fracture liaison service and what should we have as, as part of our fracture liaison service. FLS started over 20 years ago. Uh, the first FLS in the world was in Glasgow, in Scotland. It was started by, by Alistair McClellan and, and my friend Stephen Gallagher. And the first fracture liaison nurse in, in the world, as far as I know, was Maureen Fraser. And Maureen is known to both you and me as someone who still works for the Royal Osteoporosis Society. So um, the fracture liaison concept was one of Scotland's many gifts to the world. That's brilliant, along with whiskey and golf. And, and iron brew, of course. <laughs> I do really like pineapple iron brew, but I've only ever found it once. Maureen has been a really great supporter on Twitter, so probably a good spot to say thank you, Maureen. And also thanks to all the other people who've been supporting us on Twitter and Facebook. It's really nice to get all of your feedback. So David, the process you were describing at FLS there sounds very holistic, asking the patient about their lives, their lifestyles, collecting x-ray data, perhaps collecting bloods, etc. It seems like a lot of information to collect, so I suppose you'll get a lot of information about the patient. Once you have that information, how do you use it? Well, I suppose uh, the, what we do next depends on the outcome from each individual assessment. For us, for some people, we will discover that their bone quality seems good, that their bone density is good, that their risk of fracture seems small. And for those patients, there's, there's not necessarily a lot to do. They can be reassured. There's a large group of people in the middle who we find have moderate osteoporosis and moderately increased risk of fracture. And those are patients for whom we usually communicate with their GP and advise that they should be treated with perhaps a calcium and vitamin D supplement or a bisphosphonate or if appropriate HRT. And they don't necessarily need to come back to a specialist clinic and hospital. It is worth remembering that the majority of osteoporosis care does happen in general practice and we depend very much on our GP colleagues for that support. There are a smaller number of patients who are complex cases, who perhaps have very low bone density or who cannot take bisphosphonates, who have kidney disease, who are on cancer treatment, who have had organ transplants and, and many other complex cases. And those patients are usually invited to see me at a clinic so that we can discuss the use of, of more unusual drugs or, or the use of, of other means to, to maximize the, their bone health. And of course, the better we get at identifying and assessing patients, we turn up sometimes people who we know have very, very high risk of fracture and who we would really like to see quite quickly to get them started 
on some of these new anabolic treatments. And most osteoporosis services over the years haven't really been set up with an urgent channel or an urgent clinic. And that's something we're thinking about more, how we deal with these very high-risk patients and how we can get to see them urgently and get them on some of these new anabolic drugs urgently. If I'm understanding this correctly, then, what you're saying is that you can use the FLS data collected perhaps by the nurses to stratify the risk of the patients. Maybe there's no risk, so they're fine. Maybe there's low risk, so you're using some sort of diet or lifestyle intervention. Maybe they're high risk, so you might be treating them with some sort of anti-resorptive. And it also seems like you're identifying another group of patients, the very, very high risk patients who might need some sort of anabolic, that is to say, bone building treatments. Are these the patients that you're most worried about? They are the patients that we're most worried about. We know that if you have, a, a, for example, a vertebral fracture and you have very low bone density, then your chances of further fracture within even the next six months are extremely high. For a long time, there wasn't a lot we could do for those patients, but in recent years, there's some new exciting drugs about that can really make a difference to bone density and fracture risk in the short term. So yes, those are patients we nowadays like to see as quickly as possible uh, to get started on the best treatment. So now then might be a good time to bring in today's guest. And we have been able to get somebody who can help us dig down into this connection between FLS, very high fracture risk, and urgent treatments. Our guest today is from Oxford University, a consultant in metabolic medicine, consultant rheumatologist, and expert in osteoporosis and bone metabolic disease. A warm welcome to our guest today, Dr. Karsem Javed. How are you today? Oh, very well, Richard. Good to see you. Oh, fantastic. It's really great to talk to you today. You're one of the people that we wanted to talk to at the very start of the podcast when we began this series. So we're both very excited. And uh, hopefully we're going to pick your brain today so we can explore some of the connections between imminent fractures and FLS. But I suppose speaking from my own point of view as a a non-clinician, one thing that strikes me as a bit odd is why do fracture liaison services only screen people over 50 years of age? Thanks, Richard. That's a really good uh, comment. So, I mean, the aim of a fracture liaison service is to make sure that you're capturing people after fracture who could have osteoporosis. And when you look at the epidemiology, the risk of osteoporosis really starts going up after the age of 50. It doesn't mean that people who break a bone below 50 won't have osteoporosis. It's just that the risk is much lower. And for the best return on investment, it's better to look at people aged over 50. Hi, Cass. It's great to great to have you on the on the podcast. Richie and I were talking earlier about how fracture liaison services were were set up and how some were, were designed differently from others. Some, for example, took bloods uh, at the at the assessment. What, from your point of view, makes an effective fracture liaison service, and how should we be designing our services? Great question, David. So if you look back, it was really Alison McClellan and Stephen Gallagher who launched Fracture Liaison Service in the late 90s independently. And and that was a real game changer because osteoporosis clinics at that time were really around um, postmenopausal women and no one really thought to go into the trauma wards. 
And at that stage, it was really a one-stop shop. You saw the patient, uh, assessed them, did the DEXA, and in one go, you had them off and recommended to GPs. We've now shifted in measuring effectiveness in terms of how many people you can get on treatment early and stay on treatment for at least a year. Because we know from the pharmacological evidence that actually it's early treatment initiation and sustained adherence that produces the greatest reduction fracture risk. So if you work backwards from that, the good fracture liaison service finds all of the medium and high risk patients, assesses them rapidly, recommends treatments that addresses their fracture risk, and then make sure they stay uh, and they make sure they start and stay on treatment. And we've enshrined those within um, two metrics. One is the organizational audit, which is called the best practice framework within the International Osteoporosis Foundation. And the other one are the key performance indicators, uh, which is also through the IOF, but also the Fragility Fracture Network and the National Osteoporosis Foundation in the US. So we see effectiveness much more on the patient level in getting the right patient quickly onto treatment and staying on treatment to reduce their fracture risk. But doesn't mean we ignore the other stuff, the other key points, so falls risk assessment, adequate calcium vitamin D nutrition, and very importantly, patient education. Because unless they understand what's happening, they won't engage with your pathway and you won't achieve those metrics. We can almost be a, a victim of our own success in that we will identify some people at very high fracture risk or what I think we're now calling imminent fracture risk. Could you talk to us just a little about this concept of imminent fracture and, and really what we should be doing with those patients once we identify them? Yeah, that's a really important concept that's drifting into the FLS field. So imminent fracture risk is a relatively new concept. It was only uh, Brio who described it about four years ago. But since then, it's become into the uh, common osteoporosis thinking because of epidemiology. We've realized that fracture risk is not linear. Um, there are some risk factors that cause a spike in short-term fracture risk. And we define imminent fracture risk as a risk of a fracture in the next two years. Uh, that's a fragility fracture. And that changes what you do because it changes how you assess patients. So if patients have got a major osteoporotic fracture, such as humerus, spine, or vertebra, this is, sorry, humerus, vertebra, or hip, we know that their risk of another fraction in two years is extremely high, maybe even 20%. And remember, we normally start treating people who have a 10-year risk of around 20%, and we're now seeing that at two years. And the problem we've had in the past is we've never been able to quantify the imminent fracture risk, but the, the team at FRAX have now worked on this, and the new FRAX development team will, induce, will include an imminent fracture risk. So if you, if you think about it, then the patient's completely different. They're not looking at their 10-year risk, which for some patients is a little bit comforting. In the next 10 years, who knows where we're going to be? If you start saying in the next two years, you've got a one in five chance of a fracture that could be life-changing, that engages a patient. But it also means a clinician has to act quickly. We have to screen the patient, make sure there's no secondary causes, make sure they're eligible for treatment and get them on treatment as soon as possible. And then put whatever you can do, whatever you can throw at them to keep them on treatment for at least uh, one to two years. 
and you know, David, when we were growing up, we had like uh, HRT, Alendronate was a big thing, Residronate versus Alendronate. It's completely different now. We have injectables, we have uh, Zaledronate, Denosumab, we have uh, PTH analogs. Um, some of us will soon have access or already have access to antiscleroston inhibitors. And this is important because it means, based on evidence of head to head trials, we can really select the right drug for the right patient and target uh, the treatment uh, more effectively. So people at very high imminent fracture risk probably isn't worthwhile giving them an oral bisphosphonate. When we model it, 80% of refractures will still happen even if you give them an oral alendronate because of slow onset of therapeutic benefit, really bad adherence. But when you go to injectables, you can bring that right down to 50% or even less than 50%. And that's really exciting. Uh, we now almost see our fast track patient who can rapidly be assessed, get on treatment, and you know, one day maybe even within the trauma visit, be started on very potent treatments. This is interesting, and um, I didn't realise the numbers were so high. So if I understand this right, then you're saying that somebody at risk of an imminent fracture might have a risk as high as one in five for a fracture in two years, which obviously is not, not very good. But at the same time, with the FLS, you can get somebody uh, diagnosed and treated on the same day. And then you have a very powerful range of medicines that you can give the patients to try and reduce the fracture as quickly. I suppose that leads to the next question, which is how effective are the fracture liaison services at preventing the fractures, especially given that the risk is so high? So that is the $64,000 question, because it's really hard to prove, because to do that in a traditional scientific way is a randomized controlled trial. You give some patients an FLS and some patients not an FLS, but we don't have equipoise. We can't do that. And the other issue is FLSs at present, there are very few that deliver to that performance. There are very few FLSs that can process patients that quickly and get them onto treatment that rapidly because of structural and organizational issues and the lack of investment. Because it's been underappreciated. It's always the last man in the queue is the, the MSK, you know, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, mental illness get really high priority, but osteoporosis is still lagging behind. So what we've done is we've created a mathematical model. Uh, the team at Oxford with Rafael Pernodo Villanueva is developing a calculator that uses clinical trial evidence and looks at things like how many people do you find, how many months do you take or weeks do you take or days do you take to start them on treatment and how long do they stay on. And the fracture benefits are significant. It depends on fracture site, age, and sex, because mortality is the other problem. But they're, they're big. But I, I think it's getting the message across that these are avoidable fractures. And if you have a fracture, that's often a permanent uh, loss of independence, either in a limb or in your whole mobility. And, you know, the treatments are extremely effective. If you look at the effect of statins and heart attack, you're looking at like 20%, 30% reduction. If you're looking at these drugs, they're like 70% reduction spine fractures, 50% reduction hip fractures. They're way more potent. And we just haven't been very good at promoting our specialty that we've got very effective treatments. We know who the patients are. We just need to join the dots and get them get the right patient, the right treatment. 
So how do we go about moving our specialty up the league table then, if you want to put it like that? I know this is something we discussed briefly on another another forum. I mean... Some sort of podcast, maybe? <laughs> if it was a podcast. No, I mean, funding for the health service is very front-loaded. It's very emergency-loaded. And if you take another condition, for example, like stroke care that you, you talked about, you know, you and I growing up, stroke care was something really about aftercare, about rehabilitation. And now with the availability of lysis for stroke, stroke has suddenly become an emergency occurrence. What do you think, what do you think behind sort of call it, calling, calling imminent fracture an emergency in terms of osteoporosis? Or is there some other term we should use to really draw attention to the fact that this these are urgent cases and need to be treated with with very powerful drugs urgently i think we just have to bring all the data together in a way the policy makers and decision makers understand and then compare it with other conditions i mean very simple example coming with a heart attack you've got eight percent risk of another heart attack in the next two years next year i think Oh, is it one year or two years? I think it's two years. I'll have to check on my facts. But it's exactly the same after a hip fracture. And, you know, our, our reaction to a hip fracture is very rehab recovery, just like we did with stroke. And look what we've managed to do with stroke. We transformed it. We can now offer, you know, same hour CT scans. You know, we were struggling to get them the same two week or the same few days. So I think that is an important concept. And then we take the approach of, say, you know, a TIA leading to stroke. You know, there are some fracture sites, the humerus and the spine, where there's a very high imminent fracture risk. And we can almost say, look, these are red flag patients need fast tracking because the gatekeeper for the very effective treatments will be usually in secondary care. But most of the activity is in trauma in a different department. So you have to get the patient from the trauma clinic into that secondary care anabolic space as quickly as possible so they can start treatment. And I think it's culture. We have to be a lot more advocate, a lot better advocates for our patient groups. We have to be really pushing the agenda. Because, uh, great example, I got approached by uh, my CCG because they looked at what they were spending money on in older people. It was COPD and fractures. And then they came to me and said, what can you do about fractures? And I said, well, I've been asking for a better FLS for about five years. I know what to do. But that's what's going to happen, David. People are going to look at their healthcare system and say, we haven't got any money to do everything. COVID's made everything very complicated. Where are, where are the easy wins we can get to reduce secondary care activity, improve patient outcomes? That's evidence-based. And, you know, whenever we go, we have the same like open door policy but the problem is that no one owns osteoporosis it's not endocrinology it's not rheumatology it's not geriatrics it's not trauma and because we don't have a specialty lead that's really hard for us yeah. to say it's it's us we want to do it but they say well you know the money saving is not where the activity is it's very that's something i keep saying to richie that's what we need we need bone health and osteoporosis as a specialty rather than just something which uh a rheumatologist does a little of, or an endocrinologist does a little of, but that's probably a topic for another podcast. When I first started out as a researcher in osteoporosis, I didn't really know who to go and talk to. It's really confusing. Let's, let's just assume for a minute that we did have a speciality for osteoporosis, and there was a, a group of doctors who, who, would, 
who would be, you know, the right advocate, whose door would we have to kick in in order to get more money and more attention, more care for your patients? Well, there's two doors. There's a top-down door and the bottom-up door. So bottom-up is easy. It's your hospital, your local health system to say, look, this is the local need, this is the local delivery, and these are the avoided fractures that are messing up your local healthcare system. But the local decision-maker will always look at the top and say, what is the government telling me are my healthcare priorities? What's in the long-term care plan? What's in the COVID recovery plan? Uh, you know, a great example, Chris Whitty did this uh, thing about coastal deprivation and long-term conditions. Fractures are barn door, higher with deprivation. If you're deprived, you're more likely to do badly, longer length of stay. It wasn't even mentioned that osteoporotic fractures were an example of coastal deprivation. So we really have to work on, on a sort of whole system approach. And, you know, there's great advocates. We've got the Royal Osteoporosis Society. They've got their all-parliamentary osteoporosis group. We've got the Society of Endocrology, the British Society of Rheumatology, the British Geriatric Society, the BOA, Royal College of Physicians. We've got audits. We have all the right ingredients, and we just need to capitalize on that to get that step change. The FLS is not a luxury. It's a basic delivery of NHS care. I mean, if you went into hospital with an MI and no one checked you for diabetes or cholesterol or hypertension, you think, what sort of hospital is this? And their secondary prevention rates are 95%. And yet for a fracture, which causes chaos, because you have to go and have operations or you're off work, you know, we're at 20%. So it, should be a norm, a, it should be a normal thing for a hospital yeah. to have a fracture liaison service and indeed to have a fast track service as well. And then in the way that all hospitals would expect to have a fast track service for breast cancer or for stroke prevention. And uh, all hospitals really should have a fast track service for for imminent fracture. And and it also feels to me like maybe perhaps all of the FLSs should be doing the same thing or a similar thing when assessing the patients, meeting the patients, speaking to the patients. It sounds like there's quite a lot of variation around the country in the way the patients are managed. Yeah, you're right, uh, Richard. We, look at, we looked at treatment recommendations across all the FLSs that participate in our audit. And some people get some treatments, some people don't get treated, and some people get other treatments. So we looked at treatment, yes or no, and then type of treatment. We couldn't work out why some people weren't getting treated. We looked at age, fracture site, you know, the, the, the variable, okay, some won't have osteoporosis by DEXA, but, you know, we could, there was a lot of variability and there are some differences in clinical pathways, but I think those are marginal gains. I think the biggest gain is that most services aren't funded very well. They'll say, I want an FLS and they'll go, fine, I'll give you a nurse and I'll give you half an administrator. They won't say, well, how many patients do you have to see? Three and a half thousand. Okay, that's going to take about four nurses, two administrators, and maybe a lead nurse as well. They don't think like that. They say, let's just tick the box. And I think the beauty of the FLSDB is it's showing where there are service gaps because of resourcing issues. Um, uh, And then, you know, we'll work with them with quality improvement to align their guidelines. Um, But I I think it's more resourcing than, than, than pathways differences. Does that make sense, Richie? 
It it does, yes. And this is really interesting. One of the courses I teach at Imperial is research skills. And I teach the medics. And what I try to teach them is, is that as a medic, they need research skills because they are going to have to be able to fight for resources when they are doctors. And the way that they will do that is by collecting data on their services to show that they need more resources and what the kickback would be if they had those extra resources, especially things like staffing levels. So I'm going to, I'm going to clip this out and put it into the online teaching that the, the students at Imperial get. And I, or, or maybe I should just put the link in and we can push up the downloads a bit here. Before we finish, I have one last question for you. Something that has cropped up in this podcast again and again and again and again is that maybe osteoporosis is underrepresented, underestimated in the wider world. I have, since I've been working on osteoporosis, uh, Karsem, you are somebody who's come up again and again and again and again as one of the key advocates for our field. I've seen you deliver webinars. I've seen you deliver conference talks. You recently had a stint as the president of the British Orthopaedic Research Society. And I'm always impressed, including today, by your enthusiasm and your energy and your drive. And we know we need more people like you in our field. Where does your enthusiasm and drive come from? How do you manage to fit more than 24 hours a day into 24 hours a day? Uh, so if you knew, if you if you work for me, you know I don't. I'm behind on my emails, but I, I suppose it's a very simple. It's actually a simple um, ask. I had a great mentor, Cyrus Cooper, who said, "What do you want to be known for?" Uh, and and he said, "You're going to be known for research or clinical." And you know, the, the, what we're I don't really. I think it goes beyond that. For me, it's like um, a very simple problem, FLS. I can explain it to my four-year-old that if you break a bone and you might have another one, you should get checked to see how strong your bones are. You know, it's not a very difficult concept. And yet it takes inordinate skill to bring together all of the levers so they're aligned. Uh, Get that alignment with policy, with the research, with the data, uh, with the clinicians, with quality improvement. And it's and it's so satisfying because for me, there is no doubt that every hospital will have an FLS. I have no doubt. It's, it's inevitable. My only question is, can I get there in three years, five years or 10 years? And I'm working as hard as I can. And, you know, I, I seem to have lots of energy, but I have a fantastic team around me to support me, push me, challenge me. Uh, and I have great patients who do the same. They push me, challenge me. And, I'm lucky because I can cross both bridges. I've, I've done epidemiology. I was lucky enough to have a PhD. I understand data. I understand statistics. And I understand clinical. And I work clinically as well. And it's that beautiful place of being a job that you enjoy, that's never boring, that is always challenging. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're taking... We're doing something that just feels right. And, and Richard, when you're in a field that feels right, there is no limit. No one, you don't ask yourself, is this too much? You just do whatever it takes to get the job done. And it's been very satisfying. So I haven't given you a very good answer, at least being asked that sort of question, but that's why I do it. Because it's the, the, the benefit. I mean, Cyrus taught me from epidemiology, you can do a lot as a doctor, but if you can change a guideline or change a world system, 
the amount of patients you help is insane. You know, and that tantalizing vision that, you know, one day uh, David and I will chuckle that you could go into hospital with a fracture and no one thought osteoporosis. That, that will be gone. That will be like, oh, God, they didn't do that anymore. Wow, they just paid for all those operations. That, I, I complete belief that will be gone. It's just when. And, you know, it's our challenge for this generation and the next generation of medics to get us to that place. Because once we get there, we won't go back. You know, it's not like I have to keep telling people that once you have a heart attack, check for diabetes. It's just in the system. And just like David said, we just have to normalize it. Because once it's normalized, job done, I can start doing more rare disease stuff. You know, that's a really good answer. And it's something we've talked about. There are parts of the world, as you know, that are entirely covered by fracture liaison service. So Scotland is entirely covered by a fracture liaison service. Uh, Northern Ireland is now. I think New Zealand is. There are several other countries. And I think once you reach that complete coverage, once you reach the point where if you fracture a bone, you will not be able to avoid some nurse tracking you down and demanding that you come for your assessment and DEXA scan, once you reach that point, it's very hard to go back. It's, it's illogical and ridiculous to go back, but we just have to strain every sinew to get to that point. But only once. But only once, uh, absolutely. And it's worth, it's worth it. I mean, I'm f- going to be 50 next year, so I think I've got enough time to see. I want to see the other end. <laughs> I want to I teach the medical students that, you know, it's just 101. Oh, yeah, so and then we'll be going to much better things. But it, it, that, that's the enthusiasm, because I know it's achievable. Yeah, and maybe we need to get together and, and establish osteoporosis as a, as a specialty by itself where you can come in and you can train as a registrar right the way through in osteoporosis. Because I think, as, as you were saying, there's so many, more, so many more drugs. There's just a complete paradigm shift in how we think about it. And uh, yeah, I think we need our own specialty now. And if you look at it in, in the current specialties, and you may want to edit this out, um, so rheumatology and endocrinology, we kind of looked down upon by our colleagues. You know, the real rheumatologists have got the really sick patients with vasculitis, rheumatoid arthritis, and the osteoporosis just sits in the corner and does its own thing. Uh, and, you know, now we've got biologics that are a little bit more expensive. That's a good thing. But, you know, if I go to most hospitals with mixed clinics, if I, if I compared their knowledge of osteoporosis with rheumatoid arthritis, there would be a disparity. And when you look at frequency, it's the other way around. Osteoporosis is way more common than, than you know, rheumatoid or, that, or lupus. See if the knowledge, Richie, is going to edit this out. I will agree wholeheartedly with you about, about rheumatology and rheumatologists in general and their attitude to osteoporosis. Yeah. yeah. We're definitely keeping this in. This is important. <laughs> this is the whole point of the podcast, you know, to... to to make people know and understand and worry more about these things so that we can make change in the world. And I would say to trainees, if there is a trainee listen to this, osteoporosis is one of the best specialties to go into because nearly every other multi-system disease, either because of the disease or how their specialty treats them, gives them osteoporosis. So you will see more neurology, gastroenterology, renal, respiratory disease than anywhere else. There are some really unusual rare bone diseases that can come in osteoporosis, and we know practically nothing about those, and only two or three do we have any drugs for them. 
So that's like new discovery. And then all of the FLS stuff we're doing now isn't randomized controlled trials, it's implementation science and quality improvement, which is growing as a clinical and research specialty. So if you want an area which has got clinical trials, epidemiology, basic science, implementation, rare stuff, common stuff, health policy, health economics, you, you couldn't go further than from osteoporosis. But you know, everyone who comes to my clinic says, wow, this is really interesting because, you know, pregnancy-associated osteoporosis, you know, it's a fascinating condition. We know nothing about it. That's right. Students leave my clinic and say, I can't believe osteoporosis was so interesting. Yeah. They don't even bother dis disguising their surprise that it was so interesting. <laughs> I, have that, I have that from senior registrars yeah. who come in from endocrinology and rheumatology and say, I didn't realize it was that complicated. And it was that, and the basics are basic, but you can very quickly get very good. But, you know, we have GP trainees and they just love the clinic because they're always asking questions. And, you know, Dave will know, we're on the edge. Renal disease, common, commonest thing we have, kidney failure in older people, really shooting in the dark for treatments. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we haven't even touched, we haven't even touched on the mental health aspects of osteoporosis yeah. either, pain from vertebral fractures and hip fractures and fear of falling and lack of mobility. And that's, that's a whole other area that, again, is... And I'd love to, and I'd love to, sorry to interrupt you, Dad, I'd love to see that come part of the FLS. Oh, I would as well, very much, yeah, absolutely. You know, let's, let's get every FLS patient having a depression screen. Very simple. Let's just get it done. But, you know, it's not part of the... We do it in Oxford a little bit, but we don't do it systematically. And let's measure the success of an FLS by having depression screens they've done. You know, unfortunately, we can't even get them on the drugs, so I don't want to push it too far. But once everyone's on the drugs, let's now try and get the rest of it right. Because the two, I mean, Zoe Paskin's done some great work. You know, you've got to get the engagement. Yeah. And if you ignore the mental health, doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. They're not going to take the drive. Absolutely. I hope Richie, you're writing down all these ideas because this is this is liquid gold. Honestly, I just transcribe these directly into a Word document as soon as I finish. <laughs> and we had Zoe Paskins on a couple of months ago, and oh, she good. was she was so articulate as you would expect from somebody who researches communication. So I'd, I'd highly recommend anybody who hasn't listened to that one goes back and listen to it. It's really fabulous. And today I was very careful. I said one in five when we were talking about the risk, not 20%, which is what Zoe told us. I'm an epidemiologist. So for me, one in five is 20%, but you're quite right for the listen wider audience. <laughs> okay, we could go on. And every time that we do a podcast, we come up with at least two or three more topics for podcasts. Dr. Karsem Javed, I would love to have you back on the podcast again. I'm sure David will as well. Thank you for your time today. Not at all. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. And this is a really great enterprise, and I wish you all the best. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Carsem, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. David, what a wonderful interview we had with Carsem. Uh, what were your takeaways? I think Carsem's enthusiasm for what he does, it really comes across very strongly. And you know, that, that's in, infectious and is actually really good as someone who works in osteoporosis to talk to other people who are so optimistic about it and so enthusiastic about what can be done. And, 
you know, it's, it's true what he said, you can treat one patient um, and you can make that patient better or you can change a guideline and you can influence the health of hundreds of thousands or millions of patients for years to come. And, you know, that's, that's certainly one take home message from this change a guideline and you can do so much, so much good. And I think that leads on to the idea of establishing a fracture liaison service. You can put a lot of money into new and exciting and effective drugs. And we are very keen that people do that and, and that, that pharma companies and universities do continue with that research. But unless you have the structures in place to find and identify and treat and follow up the patients, then it doesn't matter how effective a drug you have unless you're able to get it to the patient. And I think that then leads on, and you heard as we sort of this discussion flowed later on, how it's not just a question of establishing a fracture liaison service to identify the need and quantify the need, that has to be followed up with what you might call an osteoporosis service. You have to follow that up with access to clinics to get these new drugs. It's not just a question of identifying the problem. It's a question of effectively treating the problem and how we really need to completely change how we think about osteoporosis. We have talked in earlier episodes of the podcast how this is a it's a lifelong challenge. It's, a, it's changing your lifestyle. It's a marathon and not a sprint. These are drugs you have to take for years. And that's all very true. It is, it is a very long-term holistic disease, but we have to have that fast track element to it. We have to have that urgent clinic, that even emergency concept in osteoporosis, because we have now some very effective anabolic drugs and anti-sclerostin drugs which can make a huge difference to the risk of fracture in that relatively small window after the first fracture when patients are at such high risk of, of, of breaking a bone again. And then you just heard uh, Cass and I getting into the whole area of how we view osteoporosis as doctors and as specialists and working within the hospital. And it has traditionally been something which is done uh, a little by rheumatologists a little by endocrinologists, a little by care of the elderly physicians. And I think increasingly, as, as we have more drugs and more ways of assessing patients and more complex understanding of how these drugs and diseases work, there's a bigger argument really for people training specifically in osteoporosis and developing it as a specialty. Uh, not just for the interest and enthusiasm of, of people like like Cass and me and other other consultants who work in the hospital, but ultimately for the benefit of patients, so they get to see someone who has the knowledge and experience and enthusiasm to treat them best, to reduce the risk of fracture, and to allow them to live as long and as happy and as mobile and as pain free lives as possible. I know today talking about fracture liaison services, that seems a very clinical and organizational thing from the point of view as a scientist and as a research scientist. What sort of things did you take away from our interview today? I suppose the main thing that I took away is even though there is a very strong evidence base for FLS, 
for the powerful treatments that are given out after people have attended FLS to prevent fractures. Given, given the huge body of evidence, I'm really surprised that more isn't being done to set up FLS, you know, all over the country and even all over the world. And I'm also surprised that the FLS that we do have are not really very standardized, that maybe they're, they're managing patients in different ways. And again, if there's evidence, if there's data that's been collected that shows how FLS should work, then probably everybody should be following that. And I guess it all comes back to this problem that we talked about today of not having people who are specialists in osteoporosis. I find that very, very surprising, given that it is such an important condition, given that it affects so many people's lives, you know, the patients living with osteoporosis and their families, and given that it affects people's lives so severely, I think Carson was talking earlier on about the devastating effects that fractures have on people's lives. I just, it annoys me and makes me sad that more is not being done. As a scientist, it must seem strange that you have the data there. We know that it works. It's easy to implement. It has great outcomes. And yet there are still, as you know, large parts of England which are not covered by fracture liaison services. Yeah, why is, why is England so far behind Scotland and, and the rest of the UK? It seems silly that that is the case. Why is there not a more joined up approach to providing care to patients nationwide? If it's been demonstrated to work in some parts of the country, why is it not then being rolled out in other parts of the country? Now, as a scientist, I do often see that data is ignored or data is misused. You know, it's not always used properly to make the right decisions, to make objective decisions. But like you say, this should be so easy to implement because it is organizational. And the data and evidence is there. It seems like um, an easy win. This is a no-brainer. And I think Carson was talking earlier on as well about you know, how the secondary care of osteoporosis patients costs so much money. If we could prevent these fractures with some investment of money and time and effort and organization now, you know, the benefit, the yield later would be enormous, not only in terms of people's quality of life, but in terms of the savings to the NHS and the other care providers as well. These are questions which affect or which involve politics and society and all sorts of of things, I think in, in, in some ways there's that argument, you spend money now and you save money in 10 or 20 years time, but um, and even though that's to the advantage of the patient and the patient's health, if you're the health minister spending the money, then it's not, it's not you personally or your department or maybe even your party who gets the advantage of that. And that's why I think we need the all party, our all party parliamentary group that the ROS have supported. We need more politicians and more commissioners and more opinion formers really on side here because it, it really is an open goal, the fracture liaison service. Um, it really, we really should be seeing complete coverage across the UK. The other thing that uh, Carson mentioned was that 
the problem of osteoporosis is, in, is an incredibly difficult one. It's incredibly complicated, takes into account anatomy, physiology, aging, disease, you know, hormonal physiology, bone cell physiology, somebody's exercise, diet, lifestyle, smoking, all of these things can affect bone health. And as a researcher, I do find it very hard to try and design research projects for bone that bite off manageable chunks of the subject. You know, when you're trying to study such a complex thing as bone aging or bone disease, it's hard to study all of these changing factors at the same time. And not all of them you can measure. So it's always very difficult to try and articulate in a grant proposal or research paper what impact we're going to have, what we're going to learn about bone aging and bone disease, because it is such a complicated problem. And I always, always struggle to explain osteoporosis in, in, in grant proposals. And I really like having these interviews with our guests because it helps me to understand and, and learn how to explain better. I think we're both getting a lot from this and learning a lot from this. And I hope, I hope our listeners are, are too. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on anything we've talked about, but particularly anything that, anything that you heard today. And indeed, if you're a commissioner and you're keen to commission a fracture liaison service, then please do, do let us know and we'd be keen to point you in the right direction. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye now.